excited that we are doing a series in Nehemiah. Anyone been having a good time with us in Nehemiah? Awesome, awesome, awesome. I'm excited to continue that. Uh, we are calling it Nehemiah, which is you know, pretty straightforward. Building for Revival. If you're not familiar with it, Nehemiah is a story of, um, of uh, uh, where, where the people of God and the city of God, Jerusalem, was broken down and the people of God were in exile. And, and basically, God calls back his people to rebuild the city and to rebuild the protection around the city. And basically, there's kind of a revival that takes place over the course of a number of years uh, in, in the people of God and in the city of God. And so through this series, I really believe that God is depositing into us and into our church how to be a people uh, who build our lives well, who build our homes well, who build our uh, callings uh, in the places of impact that God's called us to be and that God is teaching us to be people uh, who build well for his glory uh, in life. And as we start today, uh, I was thinking about uh, the fact that every good story has a, um, a, 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 an obstacle or an enemy or antagonist that has to be overcome, right? Uh, for those of you guys who are closer to my generation, uh, Roadrunner and Coyote, right? Come on. Uh, anyone watch Inspector Gadget as a kid? You had the claw, right, with Inspector Gadget. Right, or, or Lion King, so you have Simba having to defend uh, against Scar, you know, um, the, the arch nemesis. The Lord of the Rings, right, they had to destroy the ring and all those who were fighting for the power of the ring, right, and ultimately then a king, uh, and finally had a, a just king who ruled rightly. Uh, and even the other day I was watching uh, Clifford the Red Dog with my kids. It is the fluffiest, kindest show you'll ever see. And even in Clifford the Red Dog, they had to protect against a flood that was coming to the town, right? So you'll never see a box office thriller that was like, like man, it's just the stories that grew up in a perfect family, in a perfect town, and nothing difficult ever happened. And it was just a quaint, peaceful movie. You'll never leave like, oh, that was a complete thriller. That was an awesome story. That was so inspiring because life doesn't work that way, right? Uh, like, like none of us have experienced the quaint, perfect life. We've all experienced hardships. We've all experienced obstacles along the way. And, and, I, and I think how it happens in, in God's kingdom is that when we are trying to uh, build the things God's called us to build, whether it's our, our homes or um, our callings or even what God is doing in our own hearts. I think a lot of times we're moving along, we're, we're cranking along, and all of a sudden we get sideswiped by something in life. We're like, what in the world just happened? And I think we forget sometimes that not only is life hard, but that we are in a spiritual battle. And I think because of that, we kind of show up with our flip-flops on, kind of like, God, we're going to go change the world, and flip-flops, and the enemy comes and starts to take us out, and we wonder what, what in the world happens. And so we live in a real battle uh, with real angels and, and real demons and real enemies, and the good news is that we have 
victory in Jesus, that Jesus has defeated the power of them, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, and we are invited to live in the victory of Jesus as we do the works and do the things and make the impact and even are personally transformed in the life that God has called us to live and lead. So who, uh, how does our enemy fight us and how do we overcome him? How, how is the, the ways in our lives, because I bet many of us today would, ex, would, would be honest to say, man, whether it feels super spiritual or not, I feel in the midst of a battle. So how does our enemy come against us to slow us down or to derail us, and how do we overcome him? Today I want to answer that question, and we're also going to look at uh, specifically the story of Nehemiah 4, um, and we're going to learn five things from the text on not only uh, learning about how our enemy wants to destroy us, but in five things of how we uh, overcome the obstacles and opposition of the enemy to do the things that God has called us to do. If you want to turn to Nehemiah chapter 4, uh, if you need a Bible, I invite you to put your hands up. We'd love to put one in your hands. Just a reminder where we've been uh, this first week, we looked at how God gives us a burden for the things he's called us to, and that God does a work in us to do work through us. The second week, we looked at how Nehemiah was a, a man of prayer, and that uh, what we do in prayer in the unseen will shape what we see in the scene. The second week, we looked at how uh, fear, right, that, that, that courage is not the absence of fear, but it's acting boldly in the face of it, right? Last week, we talked about how uh, it takes the, the army of God and the people of God to, to do the works of God, and that success does not happen in isolation. And this week, we're going to look at how we overcome the obstacles and, and spiritual opposition in front of us. We're going to start by reading verses 1 through 3 and just kind of move through chapter 4. So we got Nehemiah here. Thank you, Jace. We got Nehemiah, um, who, right, they, they started to build the wall, and now some opposition is coming their way. Starting in verses 4. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Check, check. Am I on? Boom. Here we go. Thank you, Jason team. Okay, now when Sambalat, who we saw in two, uh, chapter 2, heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they receive, revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. We're going to pause there. Uh, so what's happening here, right? Uh, God has, has, has commissioned them and called them to go and rebuild this wall of protection around the city. In those days, if you didn't have a protection around the city, they'd be completely defenseless uh, and vulnerable at all times. So they're going to rebuild this wall of protection. They've gotten a decree of the king of Persia and protection from Persia to do that. But what's happening here is that the local people and the local rulers didn't like that. So, so why were they opposing them? Well, 
Sanballat was um, the governor of Samaria, which was just north of Jerusalem. And so basically he was a governor of the entire region until Nehemiah came and stepped in. So basically Nehemiah and the people of God fulfilling the work of God were a threat to him and his kingdom and were a source of cutting off his tax dollars and his money. And so he was furiated, as we see here. And, um, and so, uh, and, and uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's a, a picture for us uh, in our own lives, that God has called us to do the works of God, that God has called us to go out and advance his kingdom. God has called us to go bring the love of God in the midst of darkness. God has called us to, to even in our own hearts, rebuild and restore where, where darkness once reigned in our families to establish the work of God and, of course, in the city. We are land takers on divine assignment from our king, right? But there's going to be opposition to that. Right? There's going to be, even starting with people, right? I'm not going to hone in as much on the people, but there's going to be people that if we stand up for what we believe and we're verbal uh, uh, and, and living a life that is counterculture at times, there's going to be some people that don't like that at times. And we need to, to understand that and we're not trying to be a pain in the rear to anyone, but if that we are, man, if we're doing what God called us and it looks countercultural and people don't understand it, there might be some opposition from people at times. But also, uh, there are spiritual opposition at times because let me say it like this, nothing freaks out Satan more than a spirit-filled believer who knows their assignment and their authority in Christ. Nothing freaks out our enemy more than a spirit-filled believer who knows their assignment and knows their authority in Christ. And we need to note here that, that Nehemiah was under the protection of Persia. So there's nothing physically or materially that Samblat and Tobiah could legally do. All they could do is basically try and stop the work through discouragement. That's what you're going to see here. Jesus, in the same way, has won the victory. We are under his protection. We are under his authority. And although there are enemies in our life, there's a spiritual forces that want to come at it. I want to say our king is greater. He's won the victory. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says it like this. Talking about the cross, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. Jesus uh, disarmed the rulers, the spiritual forces and rulers and authorities that would have come at us. So um, Satan is going to fight us, he's going to battle, but we need to understand that Jesus has already won the victory. So if we're going to stand in the victory of Jesus, what we need to do is understand Satan's schemes that would come against it. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. He said, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes or his designs. Okay, so... As I said, the enemy does not have authority if you are a believer in Christ. The enemy does not have authority over you or over your home, but what he does is to work to discourage us. 
right? So how does the enemy do that? And what we're going to see here is we're going to kind of start with the baseline, and then we're going to see the enemy trying to get a little more aggressive throughout the chapter. We're going to kind of see this development of this story and learn throughout the chapter. So it starts uh, with, with verse uh, 1, 2, and 3 here. The enemy starts uh, by mocking and accusing, right? So when the enemy talks about God, he lies. But when the enemy talks about you, he accuses. When the enemy talks about God, he lies. But when the enemy talks about you, he accuses. It's who he is. It's not just what Satan does. It's who he is. The name Satan literally means adversary or accuser. That's literally what his name means. And you see this numerous times throughout the scripture, especially Zechariah, one of them being Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, kind of this prophetic picture. Uh, It says this, And then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? We see in this text that Joshua represents the people of God, and there is Satan right there just accusing day and night, accusing Joshua of the people of God before the Lord. And that's a picture of how he works in our lives. And so as we go back to our text in Nehemiah chapter 4, how do we see Satan accusing? There's a list of, of, of ways even right here. First of all, he lobs personal accusations, right? So he goes at their own personal sense of strength, well-being. What are these feeble Jews doing? How does that work in our life? Man, you're, you're a failure. Look, nothing you ever do works out. Hey, no one likes you. If you're really open with people, people will reject you. If people really knew what you struggle with, they'd know that, man, you, you just fail. You are a mess. You, are, you can't get your life together. You're never going to get this figured out. You have nothing to give, right? Or you're not enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not strong enough. You're not lovable enough. You're not gifted enough, right? You're not smart enough. You're not enough as a person, right? He'll lob personal accusations against you again and again and again. He'll lob accusations on your work or your calling to make it, you doubt it. What we see right here is he, he comes, and well, are they going to restore this wall for themselves? Are they going to finish it in a day? Which, of course, they're not going to finish a day, but he makes them question through a little twisting and a little lie. He said, they're going to re- revive these, these stones, which even were burned. He's, he's coming against their calling and their work to make them doubt and question the work that God had called them to, right? God will come at you and say, I know you're in the middle of this, but did God really call you to this? Is God really going to work on your behalf? Or, or uh, man, um, He'll attack our significance. Like, man, look at that job you're in. Shouldn't you be farther along by now? If you were really called, you'd have more influence or more people would know you. If you're really called, your income would be greater or better. He'll attack our significance. He'll attack, right, our our lives and say, man, look, all your family had this sin. Your parents were divorced or your parents struggled with this. This is you too and it's going to hijack your life is going to hijack your, this is, this is your portion in life. 
right? Or, or he'll accuse our fruit, right? And what you see here is, is they say, man, if a fox goes up on it, and he's kind of using this mocking tone. If a fox goes up and the wall's going to fall down, the enemy would love to come in our life and just say, look, it's your life. You're so weak. Look at that thing you said. That was so stupid. Why did you say that? You've got to be ashamed of yourself or embarrassed. He'll come and say, look at your marriage. Look at your parenting. Look at your relationships. Like everyone that you date doesn't work out. So look at your leadership, right? He'll find those places that are in process in your life and will point again and again and again and again. And I think sometimes we expect him to come like with horns and a pitchfork, like, you know, like, like prodding us and poking us, like, Look at you, you stupid idiot, you know. Uh, and most of the time, it doesn't sound like some slithering snake or some guy with horns and a pitchfork. It might even sound like your own voice in your head in first person. And I'm such an idiot. And I can't believe I failed again. And I feel like my life will never amount to anything. I, I'm sure they're talking about me right now. I'm sure I'm going to fail this thing. I'm sure I'm going to mess up. Man, every time I take a risk, it seems like, where's God? And I just just stink. But I think most of the time it might sound like thoughts in our head that we tolerate. What he's trying to do is get in their head. What he's trying to do in your life is get in your head. Let me say it like this. The biggest battleground in the life of a believer isn't out there. It's right in here in your head. In the kingdom of God, battles are won and lost in the mind. Let me say that again so we can just get that and lay hold of it. In the kingdom of God, the battles we fight are won and lost in our mind. And so what is he trying to accomplish by getting into our heads, as I said earlier, discouragement? I really believe that discouragement is one of the most effective tools in the, in the weaponry that the enemy has, right? Because when we're discouraged, we pray differently. When we're discouraged, we act differently. When we're discouraged, we live defensively rather than forward moving. When we are discouraged, right, we relate to people differently. If the enemy can get our courage, if the enemy can get our, uh, our, our faith and our hope, he can start to get our actions and he can start to get our lives and he can start to lay hold of our destiny. Joshua chapter 1, when they're about to go into the promised land, what was the exhortation to Joshua and the people of God? It was this, to be very strong and courageous. You want to go build something? You want to go take land? You want to go make an impact? You're going to go live into the promises of God for your lives and the people of God. What's required? Be strong and courageous because you're going to face enemies. You're going to fight battle. What you need is to not be afraid and not give in to discouragement, but what you need is to be courageous. Right? It doesn't mean that we need to try and not feel discouragement. I think we do that sometimes as Christians. Like, oh, discouragement or fear, we're trying to not feel it. We're trying to force it down. But what it does mean is that we need to accept our humanity so we can bring all of ourselves and all of our fear and all of our discouragement and accept our humanity and say, I'm feeling this, and I am discouraged, but you, in the midst of that. The enemy tries to accuse and get in our heads to bring discouragement. What's Nehemiah's response? Let's look at verses 4 to 6. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. 
turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they're captives. Do not cover their guilt. Do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So what are two things, the first two things we're going to see Nehemiah doing to stand uh, against his enemy and live victoriously? Number one, he prays. He prays. And one of the reasons it's important is because the reality is there's a measure of truth into some of the accusation of the enemy. You ever notice that? <laughs> You're like, I kind of did mess that up. I kind of did sin, right? Like, like they were kind of feeble. They were like these people coming back in from exile. They didn't have, you know, the resources. They didn't know the lay of the land. They're coming back in trying to rebuild this city. Literally, the stones were like rubble that was left over from something that was like burned from before. And so like using these kind of like messed up stones that are like half burned and charred to like build this wall that's supposed to be intimidating. Right? You ever feel like your life is like that? You're like, he's actually kind of right, right, about that. It is true at times. The, the accusations of the enemy are true at times. But what Satan is missing and what he's trying to draw our attention away from is that while sometimes the accusation of the enemy is true, there is a much greater reality. The greater reality is that this was a work of God not of man. The stones might be burned, but God was on the move. They might be feeble, but God was strong. You might have sinned, but Jesus took it on the cross and made you a new creation. You might fall short. Your life might not make sense. You are probably lacking the resources you need to do the things God's called you to. You feel totally immature. You feel under-equipped. You don't know what you're doing, but God. That's why Nehemiah prayed. He had to lift his eyes off the smaller story that Satan was trying to get, right, and Sambalat and Tobiah were trying to get his attention to and lift them on to God. And so what does he pray? He prays a pretty angsty prayer. He's basically, he's not like, oh, God, bless them and, like, let them just be prosperous and, God, let us help. God, how can I serve them today? He's basically like, get it, God, put it back on their heads, God, bring judgment on them, right? And so we're like, what, you know, what's going on? He's feeling a lot of intensity because he's feeling attacked. You ever get that way? You're like, man, uh, you know, you're, you're wronged, right? Or the enemy's getting in your head or you're in traffic or whatever, you know, someone cuts you. You're like, you know, you just feel that level of intensity, right? What does he do? Does he... Does he complain to others? He, he doesn't complain to others. Does he, does he react to them physically in anger? No. Does he try and manipulate the situation? He actually doesn't. He brought his angst to God. You might say, well, that's a terrible prayer to pray, and whether we should pray that, or not, I don't know, we could debate that, but however you pray, work it out. Work your angst out here with God so you can live here with peace and strength. Don't take your angst out here. Take it out here. If you need to pray some weird prayers, God's going to sort it out. Right? If you need to, like, dribble some, some get him, God, you know, and God's like, oh, well, 
put that one aside, I love you, and you know, I'm going to work in you right now, right? But we need to be able to be raw. You look at the prayers in the Psalms, right? It's like, is this biblical? It's, it's the Bible, right? Uh, it's, it's just David is getting real. Nehemiah is getting real. Man, if you're not getting real about your angst and prayer, you're going to work it out here rather than here. But when we get real about what's going on in our heart here, we can have peace and strength as we go here relationally and out to the things God's called us to do. The second thing we see Nehemiah doing after praying in verse 6, it says this, so we built the wall. So there's accusation going on. He prays, and they kept going. They kept building. So we built the wall, and the wall that was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So they didn't just sit around and pray until the accusations went away. They weren't just like, oh, we'll just have a long prayer meeting forever until we feel better about ourselves and feel better about our lives, right? They just ignored it and kept on working. I think what the enemy's trying to do so often is get you to react. He's trying to instigate you. He's trying to distract your focus off just, you know, continuing on and steady working. He's trying to instigate you. It's like when you take your eyes off the road, you see that thing over here, and all of a sudden, your focal point of, like, driving is over here, and you're starting to react. That's a, that gets dangerous right there. It's about to take you off the road if your focal point gets over here, right? That's what the enemy wants to do to us. He'll just chip away, chip away, chip away. And what is he, he's trying to get us to react. Sometimes the greatest act of warfare is just staying steady, showing up. Sometimes the greatest act of warfare is, is just doing the thing that God called you to faithfully in the face of getting screamed at by the devil, in the face of your fears, in the face of your doubts, in the face of all of inside of you wanting to react Sometimes the greatest act of faith is just staying steady, right? Because it takes trust that God will deal with it. I can shut that thing out, right? Again, they didn't have authority, right, legal authority to actually do anything. And if you're a believer, neither does Satan. It's like a chihuahua, right? I, I, I run from time to time. Uh, and sometimes running, dogs will be out, you know. You ever have a little dog just, like, yipping at your feet, and it's like, you know, and it's like, at best, they'll, like, kind of bite your ankle or something like that, but they're probably just going to lick me, right? But it's just kind of annoying, uh, right? And, and uh, instead of stopping for the chihuahua, right, we need to just kick that thing and keep going. <laughs> I don't actually kick dogs. I'm just kidding, right? Right? Um, but that's, that's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to just, you know, just get our distraction, right? I mean, in my life, uh, man, leading a church is an act of faith. <laughs> it's like one big act of faith. I have things constantly, as do you, I'm sure, that can just be extremely discouraging. There's voices want to come at me consistently, like, what in the world am I doing? Or how, how is God going to do this, right? In most days, it means... Just showing up and trusting God again. And showing up the next day and trusting God. Some days I come in chipper. God's going to do great things today. And some days I drag in. I'm like, God, I'm here. <laughs> I don't know how you're going to do this. But uh, either way, right, I'm not looking, listening over there. We've got to look to Jesus, right? All right. 
So what happens next is the enemy comes back again and is, is at it again. We're going to look at verse 7 through 9. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard about the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were going to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. So the enemy is getting very angry. Why was the enemy, he just, he wasn't kind of angry anymore. He didn't just jeer at them. He was mad. He was very angry, the text says. Why was he very angry? I think it's because the breaches are about to be closed. Basically, it had reached half its height now, the wall, and basically the breaches or the gaps are about to be closed. There's about to be a continuous wall around the city, a continuous wall of protection, and the enemy is seeing them making progress and starting to freak out, right? And so he said, now's the time. They're making progress. I just want to say, right, if the enemy keeps coming at you on something, be encouraged. It's probably because you're making progress. <laughs> and so uh, what we see here is the enemy coming back again. And, and I want to say that's what we can expect of. This is very strategy. The word devil uh, is, is diabolos. And it comes from two words, dia and balos. And that word um, dia means through. It has this idea of kind of penetrating or pushing through something. That root of that word balos comes from a word uh, bala, which means I throw. And so what you see uh, with the enemy's strategy, his very name means to throw again and again and again and again at something until it penetrates through to the other side. That's what he's trying to do. He's going to keep wearing them out. He doesn't have authority, right? He might be barking like a chihuahua, right? His threats might sound a little larger now, but he's just... Again and again, I'm going to keep wearing them out. I'm going to wear them out. I'm going to wear them out. That's how he works in our lives. So what is Nehemiah's response here? Number one, he's prayed. Number two, right, he, um, he, he keeps going. But number three, he makes a plan of protection. Right, so if there's something in your life, there's an area of your life that the enemy keeps coming at again and again and again, right, um, we've got to use common sense to slow down and make a plan, right? So what does it say? It says scripturally that he set a guard against them day and night, right? You know there's some spiritual Sam who was there who was like, Nehemiah, we don't need to do We prayed. God's going to do this, right? <laughs> Nehemiah used common sense. It's like, is praying and thinking like common sense, right? In the same way, like I said, if we have consistent ongoing attacks to the enemy, we need to use common sense, slow down, and make a plan as we pray, right? We give the outcomes to God in prayer, but we still have a responsibility to lead our lives. God's got the outcomes, but we take responsibility to lead our lives, Right, so for example, if people come to me, and I'm so thankful for, and vulnerability is how uh, so often the pathway, right? Vulnerability, humility is so often the pathway to freedom. And if people come, I say, man, I'm I'm struggling with pornography or something like that, and I say, okay, thanks so much for sharing, man. Uh, and God, God loves you, and let's talk. How can I help you? You know, say, hey, <clears throat> you know, hey, so what's your plan? And I say, well, I prayed, I'm praying, right? I asked these people to check in on me on their own initiative. And I said, no, 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 what are you doing 
right, about what's the plan, right? Like, like how about, okay, keep praying, that's great, but how about getting rid of what you got and then putting a filter on it? How about, right, going deeper on why? What, what is going on in your heart? Are you anxious? Are you alone? Are you hangry? Are you, you know, what's, what's going on behind this? And how about we find Jesus in that place, and, and, and right? Um, or, or how about, man, instead of expecting other people to come to you and take responsibility to check in on you, how about you give them a report? Here, here's how it's going. I need prayer on my own initiative, right? So often we, we get spiritual, which is great, but we fail to make a simple plan, especially in the areas that the enemy wants to come at us again and again and again. I think the reason we fail to plan sometimes in those areas is because we, we have so much chaos or fear or shame or confusion around that thing, we actually start to lose our common sense of what's actually happening because our vision is twisted. Does that make sense? So Nehemiah makes a practical plan. He sets a guard against them to have a defensive strategy day and night. Right, So what is the defensive strategy you have in the areas of attack in your life that seem to be the most consistent? Right, So for me, comparison can be one of those things. I can fall prey and be a moron, basically, and start to compare myself against other men. I feel behind, I feel like this, or I feel better about myself if someone's not doing as well in some areas. Ridiculous. I have to put guards and a practical plan in my life on how I engage social media, and what I think about, and how I confess that to other people around me uh, so that I can thrive in a way. But I needed a defensive plan because I know, man, that can be a weak spot in my flesh or in my own self apart from God, and I need his help. Okay, so the enemy comes back. Nehemiah makes a practical plan. We're going to see the last bout of the enemy for this round coming, verse 10 to 14. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked up and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. That's awesome. So what do we, what do we see uh, happening here? Um, so first of all, um, What's happening is the enemies continue to come. In verse 11, you see him kind of making a little bit of a plan. But in verse 10, you see the people of God, the, the, the people of Judah, the, the Jewish people beginning to get discouraged. Basically, the enemy's plan is working over time. He's starting to wear them out, right, over time. Uh, and specifically, what's discouraging him in verse 10 is all this rubble. <clears throat> so not only were they needing to build a wall, they were basically working with a bunch of ruins of the old Jerusalem. So they had to not only build something, they had to remove a bunch of junk away from the wall so they could actually build up. And so they're basically like, man, there's no way we can do this. We're spending all our time just dealing with the trash we're trying to get rid of, right? <laughs> you ever feel like that without a show of hands, right? I, 
I know I feel like that at times, right? I'm like trying to do something great. I'm trying to believe God for things. And God, you've spoken that you're going to touch lives through me or through the church or our family. And I'm like, man, I'm just still taking out trash in my life. I'm just taking out thoughts of comparison or thoughts of whatever or insecurity or inferiority or whatever, right? I, I think a lot of us uh, can relate to that. But let me say it this way. The kingdom of God is fundamentally different than the kingdom of this world. In the kingdom of this world, our outward appearance is the complete measure of success. But in the kingdom of God, we deal with our inner world to see fruit in our outer world. In the kingdom of God, in our weakness, his strength is perfected. In the kingdom of God, it's in our vulnerability and our transparency and our trusting him in the midst of that is dealing with the heart things that get us to the fruit things. And so we can easily get discouraged if we look from the world's or even our enemy's point of view, and that's exactly what he's trying to get them to do. He's like, well, look at this rubble. Y'all stink. Like, Y'all just suck. Like, look at this. You, just, you can't even build anything because you got so much trash, right? And that's exactly the enemy's plan is to get us to look in the eyes of the natural, in the eyes of the world, rather than the eyes of the kingdom. And so basically... The people of God are probably the lowest point in this chapter right here in verse 10, or about to be in the lowest point. They're discouraged because uh, of the rubble. And then secondly, it was only halfway done, as you see in verse 6. And so what you see in verse 11 is the enemy wanted to take advantage of the low point, right? And so what they do is, I'm, I'm sure they're saying, hey, look, they're discouraged. They're only halfway done, even though they were freaking out because it was making progress. But the people of God didn't feel like that, right? Like your life is often going better than you think. Uh, so they're making progress, uh, but they're discouraged. And so the enemy says, okay, let's take advantage of this situation. What he says is this, they'll not know or see till we come uh, among them and kill them and stop the work. Now, first of all, what you see in the sex, did they actually do anything? No. It was talk. It was the chihuahua just, just barking, just trying to make a lot of noise, trying to freak them out, right? Um, it's intimidation, right, to discourage. And what we see them trying to do then is take advantage of their place. The enemy loves to surprise and threaten us when we're at our weakest, right? You see the devil uh, come to tempt Jesus in the desert, and then after he's done, it says he left and he would come back and tempt him at a different opportune time. The enemy loves to come at us when we are weakest. And so what do you see is the, is the Jews' response here, the people of Judah. Uh, they basically freak out. I think uh, the King James Version, or New King James Version, actually most of the translations, I think, translate this verse better. Verse 12, uh, it says this is the response. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came, that they told us 10 times. So basically what's happened is the Jewish people overheard, uh, overheard the enemies kind of talking and, and strategizing when complaining. They overheard, so they come and talk to Nehemiah. They come and they say they told Nehemiah and them 10 times, from whatever place you turn, they'll be upon us. So in God's sovereignty, he puts the Jewish people to overhear the plan, but they completely freak out. <laughs> so they come back to Nehemiah and they're like, Ten times, right? They're just totally freaking out. They're going to be upon us wherever we go, whatever direction. We're completely trapped on every side. They're going to be upon us. They're going to be upon us from every side and every direction we turn. They're going to be upon us. They're going to be upon us. No matter where we go, we're completely trapped. They're going to be upon us. Oh no! You ever feel that way mentally? You're like, uh, you know, you're just like a pinball machine inside, right? 
That is what is going on here in the hearts and the minds of the people of God. They are an internal pinball machine right now, about to have an anxiety attack, probably literally, uh, and they're freaking out. And I love Nehemiah's response here. Let's look back again at verse 13 and 14. So everyone's freaking out, complete chaos. The enemy's trying to say, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you. Everyone's freaking out around them, right, the people of God, and here's the leader's response. In the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I stationed the people in their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. That's awesome. In complete Chaos, Nehemiah led boldly in the face of it. So what is the fourth thing Nehemiah did? Nehemiah led boldly in the face of chaos. First, he makes a decisive decision on where to put and station people. Right? This wasn't a time to say, we're going to run a 10-part research project to figure out where's going to be best to station the people. He needs to make a decision and lead right now. Because if he doesn't lead, fear is going to get the best and they're going to crumble. Secondly, he, he calls and inspires people to believe and act again in the face of fear like we talked about two weeks ago. <coughs> just say it like this. Guys, there's going to be times where you're trying to live out the things God's called you to. In your homes, in your workplace, career, people that God's put you with friendships, calling. There's going to be times your back is against the wall and you feel like an internal pinball machine. And that is the time we step up to the plate and take a risk. That is the time we step up to the plate and lead forward instead of retreat backwards. There are times in life we have to risk it to get the biscuit. All right? There'll be times your back is against the wall. There's no perfect option. There's no way to go forward seemingly. But you understand we can't go backwards, right? And it will take risk. And it will take faith. And it might not go well. But the only way is forward. In that moment, you need to remember who you are. Remember who God is. Remember what you're called to do. Step up the plate and get a hit. All right? And, and I think that's, that's huge for us because what you see again and again is, is Nehemiah begins to have his back against the wall at different points along the way where there's no perfect option. And, and the, the option is we're moving forward. The option is moving forward. And I would bet in a room like this, some of us feel that in a way today where you think, and God's called me to this or God's put this in my heart. I don't see a way forward, but the option is not to go backwards. So we're going to go forward. I don't know how we're going to get there. We're going forward. And what Nehemiah does, he calls them. He, he says this. He says, um, do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. What he does is he acknowledges fear. It's okay to be afraid, but don't live from fear. Right? So if you're freaking out and you're pinballing, don't make a big life decision when you're pinballing, right? So although we have fear, we're not living from fear. Do not be afraid. Secondly, remember God. Remember the one who called you. Remember the one who called you to come forward. And number three, remember why you're fighting. 
If you're tempted to sin, remember your kids, remember your spouse, remember your future, remember your friends, remember your church, remember your calling. If you're tempted to quit, remember the people that God's called you to impact. Remember who is going to impact the most. Remember who will be missing out by the blessing of your obedience. Consistently again and again, whether it's feeling like I want to quit at times or feeling like, man, I'm feeling tempted, I remember my kids' faces. I remember your faces and the things that, that God has promised he wants to do in and through the church. I remember the faces, people I haven't met yet, who God's going to impact through this church. I remember the nations of the earth that God's promised us he wants to impact. And I say, God, I can show up again today. I can say yes again today uh, because that is why and you are God. I love, uh, we won't go into it long for time's sake. I'll just skip forward to verse 17 and 18. So it says this, that, um, well, first of all, the enemies, the enemies leave. And, uh, and I just want to say one thing as we go to 17 and 18. I love James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. The process wasn't just like surrendering. I always let go and let God. Their process uh, was saying, okay, right, I'm going to trust God with the results. I'm going to surrender the results to God, but I'm going to stand firm in the promise of God. I think a lot of Christians' plan to spiritual warfare is just to surrender and expect, well, he'll just back off if I surrender. It doesn't work that way. We surrender the outcomes to God. We surrender what will happen ultimately to God. We surrender the power to God, but we stand firm in the promise of God and fight. And that's exactly what they did. They stood up and fought. They resisted the devil, and he fled from them. And just as we wrap up, verse 17 and 18, I love this picture. It says this. Those who were building on the wall, uh, those who carried burdens, were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon in the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. I love this picture. So the enemy's fleeing, but what they learn is that we need to live as a lifestyle of having an offensive and defensive lifestyle. Or that's what we're going to do. So literally what you see... is these people with a sword in one side. It's kind of the, the word there for sword is kind of the shorter, kind of almost like dagger for close hand-to-hand combat. And the other hand, they had a trowel to work, right? And so they had in one hand this sword, and the other hand, they're kind of looking around and saying, take a brick and put it on. Take a brick and put it on, right? I'm in some warfare, but I'm going to keep building my marriage. I'm in some warfare, but I'm going to keep loving my neighbor in the midst of it. I'm freaking out right now, but I'm still going to take risks for God. All right, I'm in a war, and i got to look over my shoulder from time to time and fight some spiritual warfare, but I'm still going to pursue healthy relationships. I'm still going to get up and spend time with God, although it feels like I'm under attack, right? So building our lives brick by brick in the midst of being ready for the enemy. And I find we often do one or the other. We get really spiritual and try to just make our goal to not sin, and just pray a lot, right? Or we go over here and we just like, I'm just going to build and have fruit and things like that. And we miss the work of the enemy. We even somehow stop being really spiritual people in love with God. God calls us to uh, live offensively and defensively. God calls us to, uh, to, um, to trust him and to pray and to fight, but also then to live in love and to build forward in our lives practically.